0: Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery.
1: Hi there. That was a very good introduction, longer than I expected to. Uh, uh, Greetings to everybody in voiceamerica.com. This is The Steady Investor on the business channel. Um, My name is Mark Vickery, I'm the co-host and I'm joined uh, very happily by uh, Mitch Zacks, the Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Zacks Zacks Investment Management. Um, You see all investment
2: research activities at the firm, is that correct, Mitch? Yes, uh, Mark. uh, Basically, I'm one of the two primary portfolio managers at Zacks Investment Management. Uh, We're currently managing a little bit over uh, $4.5 billion uh, for various investors. And what I do at the firm is I uh, design quantitative uh, investment strategies uh, that we implement in client accounts. Very good. And you've been doing this for how long now? I've been doing it for my whole whole entire adult life, I've (laughs) spent quite a long period of time uh, looking to outperform the markets uh, by implementing uh, strategies that should hopefully be able to generate excess return above uh, market benchmarks. I
1: actually remember back in the day when you had a, an article um, a column for the Chicago Sun Times business section. I used to be the editor for that. Yes
2: column. yes uh, uh, that was, we, we've been we've been around for quite some time. We've been growing steadily over that time period. I, I started the firm with uh, Ben years ago. Uh, we had 50 million dollars in assets under management mostly individuals who had used our investment uh, research strategies and asked us to start managing their money and over that period of time it's been very nice to grow. We've been able to go from fifty million dollars to four and a half billion dollars primarily by being able to generate uh, good returns uh, for clients and uh, continue to grow over time. Uh, But uh, I'm very happy to be here with you today uh, to talk about what's going on in the market and to talk to people about how uh, the developments in the market uh, can uh, affect their portfolios and how we're responding to them and how we suggest other people should be uh, potentially responding to
1: them. Very, very good. Uh, the Steady Investor Show, by the way, is brought to you by Zacks Investment Management. Uh, now, The Steady Investor, I imagine there's some sort of philosophy behind that uh, that title.
2: Basically, it's a, I'm trying to, the, the term is trying to encapsulate what we see as the philosophical underpinnings of the firm, which is uh, essentially we're looking to hold equities over long periods of time. If you look historically back at data and you look at uh, stock market data, uh let's say in, uh from the 1900s uh for the past 120 years uh from you know, 1900 to 2016, uh what you find is that the equity market depreciates at around a 6% rate of return above whatever the risk-free rate is. So if you think of the risk-free rate As the rate that you earn on holding bonds, uh, the equity markets will have historically generated an annualized return uh, that's about six percent above that risk-free rate. At the same time, it's generating that return, which ranges from like six to ten percent, because it's six percent above the risk-free rate. Risk-free rate is pretty much zero now. It used to be about three to four percent. Um, the market has a tremendous amount of standard deviation. So in any one given year, the standard deviation of the market might be about 17%. So there's a 70% chance uh, that you're up 26%, and there's a 70% chance, uh, yeah, 30% chance you're up more than 26%, and a 30% chance you're down more than 10% in a given uh, year. And what happens is if you ignore the fluctuations, if when the market is doing extraordinarily well you try not to get too excited and when, it, when the market is under pressure you try not to get too pessimistic and you can just steady your hand and stay invested over long periods of time uh, you can generate real wealth in the market but it doesn't come through trading it doesn't come through day trading it doesn't come through timing the market it doesn't come to moving in and out of the market it comes from a very very somewhat old-fashioned uh, approach uh, which is that you want to invest in equities, you want to try and ignore all the noise that you're uh, pushed upon you, and you want to stay invested over long periods of time. And if you can t- do that psychologically over long periods of time, you can generate real wealth in the in the equity market. And that's
1: generally the gist of what Zacks investment management
2: does overall. Is that correct? Yeah, especially on the retail <laughs> side. I, I mean, when we're dealing directly with individuals, and, and we deal with individuals, we deal with investment management companies, uh, we deal with uh, pension funds and endowments. Uh, and we deal with brokerage firms, we manage money for all all these different types of groups. Uh, When you're dealing with individuals, one of the most important thing for that individual is to be able to make an asset allocation across equity and debt and be able to stay consistent or steady with that asset allocation regardless of what's going on in the market. So you want to make sure that your allocation across our proprietary strategies and your allocation across, you know, fixed income is such that it stays the same regardless of the market goes up 20% or if the market falls 20%. And
1: hence the steady investor.
2: Yes. Um but that's good. Now we are in a current situation right
1: now where we're seeing some I guess volatility on in the in the day-to-day markets and that's something we, we
2: always see volatility. Always it's, see it's, volatility. There's nothing new under the sun. You always see volatility <laughs> no matter what's going on in the market there's always a reason for it to be going up there's always uh naysayers calling for the market to fall, oh, and you always are in a period of volatility. If you're not in a period of volatility, you're not investing in equity.
1: Well, good. I think that's a nice attitude to have. And I wanted to ask about a couple of the things, at least sure. initially here, uh, that are going on in, in the markets that people are paying attention to. Uh, we know tomorrow we have that big June jobs number uh, report coming out. Uh, last month was a little bit of a shock to the system. People, I uh, think, uh, analysts were expecting well above 100,000 uh, new jobs created in the month of May, and we got 38,000. Um, and so I think the expectation now is for, I think, 160K or so for right. tomorrow's number. And we had the ADP private sector jobs number come out uh, today, and I think that was about one, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I think it was about 168 or so uh,
2: thousand. Right. The, the reason the jobs number is important is that a, uh, the, the primary driver of the market these days are uh, interest rates. And so the market has been uh, going up, or at least not going down, primarily because interest rates have remained relatively low. And uh, the jobs number is going to tell us a little bit more about the economy and whether corporate earnings are going to be growing. If you see jobs starting to pick up, uh, that's a general indication that the, the people who are getting those jobs can then start spending more money. And the corporations that are hiring those people uh, then are effectively expanding because they see their corporate their earnings uh, increasing. So I I would expect the jobs number to surprise a little bit uh, to the upside. My general belief is that uh, we're not heading into a recession in the United States, uh, but we are in a period of relatively low uh, interest rate environment. And if that low interest rate environment maintains itself uh, for a long period of time and the economy continues to expand uh, by growing jobs, you're going to start to see the uh, U.S. equity markets start to accelerate again.
1: And we did see that last month. When we saw that uh, extra low uh, uh, jobs report number from May, we saw that the Fed, when it got together to perhaps decide on a a quarter percent uh, uh, rate uh, increase, didn't do it, and
2: pretty much pushed it off the table right. would you say for the summer i don't know yeah really- i mean there was a belief that there was going to be a federal uh, reserve rate hike sometime this year several this year and the brexit vote when britain decided to leave the european union right uh, has pretty much put taken that off the table so whereas a week ago a very very strong jobs number could have been perceived negatively by the market because it would be an indication that things are accelerating faster than what we're anticipating and the federal reserve is going to increase the uh uh decrease the period of time before they raise interest rates now with brexit there's a very little chance that a very very good jobs number is not going to be met positively by the market so as before you were in this weird situation where it was almost like you wanted a goldilocks number you wanted the number not too cold and not too hot if it came in too hot the uh would mean the federal reserve is going to raise interest rates which would put downward pressure on stock prices, and if it came in too cold. It would mean that you know the recession that might be brewing in Europe uh, is is you know flowing over to the U.S. With Brexit and with the Federal Reserve very clearly signaling in their last uh, meeting notes uh, that they're not going to be raising rates, we uh, a very very strong jobs number will be positively received by the market. So we're in this situation where. From the European economy, from the global economy, it's putting downward pressure on interest rates. And the US economy isn't slowing down. So the US economy is the strongest economy right now in the world. And this outlook, if both of these hold, if, if the rest of the world kind of meanders around and keeps interest rates relatively low, and the US economy continues to accelerate, I would continue to expect uh, US equities to outperform international equities in the immediate future.
1: So based on the, these global uh, issues that we're dealing with, Brexit, uh, etc., yep. that's going to put enough downward pressure on interest rates raising by the Fed, uh, even if we get a, a, a positive, more than 200,000 uh, new jobs.
2: See, if, if the Fed raises rates right now, what's going to happen is it's going to cause the dollar to appreciate in value. If the dollar goes up, it means that U.S. companies that are exporting uh, goods come under pressure. Because they're now trying to sell the good uh, to people in Britain or to people in Europe, to people in Asia, and because the dollar's stronger, it costs them more to buy the same good. Right. So uh, that would put negative pressure on the U.S. economy. So the Federal Reserve does not want to raise rates when the rest of the world is lowering rates. Essentially, what's happened is globalization has caused the Federal Reserve's policy uh, to become interlinked with the policy of foreign. Uh, nation uh, banking systems and as a result the, the US's ability to raise rates cannot be done in a vacuum. And with the rest of the world tearing on a recession with Europe going absolutely nuts uh, with Brexit right. uh, with China potentially slowing, you're, you're not going to see the US Federal Reserve raise rates. So what does that leave us? It leaves us with a uh, interest rate environment that's incredibly low. I mean the 10-year treasury hit its all-time low uh, this week. Stock prices, asset prices, real estate prices are going to continue to elevate because right now what was being priced in was that the rates were going to go up and they're not going to go up as quick or as soon as, as the market was uh, previously anticipating. So I, if you have this environment where you have low interest rates and you have a meandering U.S. economy, you're going to see the U.S. stock market uh, continue to appreciate. And valuations are going to look very, very high uh, because interest rates are so low. Right,
1: well, that's a very interesting thing because it seems like a very new, a relatively new phenomenon that we're so beholden to the global marketplace uh, in this regard.
2: I, I, I think it's it's a result of uh, globalization. So that as these companies have become more essentially multinational corporations, uh, implementing strategies across country borders, uh, the and and the dollar has become you know the, the default currency for the world. The Federal Reserve can't operate in a vacuum. And as a result, the Brexit vote, uh, you know, yes, it caused an immediate sell-off, but then the market came back to where it was prior to the vote being taken, which at first uh, glance says, well, this makes no sense. But what really is going on is that interest rates are driving the market higher. That being said, interest rates are very low, and I've been expecting interest rates to rise for quite some time. I've been disappointed with that, uh, but when you start to see interest rates rise, You're going to see capital flow out of the fixed income area uh, into the equity market. So right now with interest rates as low as they are, uh, equities are very attractive when looked at valuation relative to fixed income.
1: Would you expect, uh, especially the financials, the the banks, the big banks, the insurance companies, that
2: sort of Uh, thing? Banks will do better once you start seeing interest rates uh, start to rise. Uh, Looking at their valuations on a price-to-book ratio, uh, they're lower than they've ever been. Uh, some of these multinational banks, I mean, you, you're, you, they're passing their stress tests, and at the same time, no one wants to own them because of just, you know, regulatory changes and, and pressure that they have on their earnings. Uh, but I would anticipate uh, that you, you're going to see uh, finance do relatively well. I think consumer staples are going to do okay. I think consumer discretionary stocks are going to do very well. Uh, retailers are going to start to come back. I'm not as bullish on uh, utility companies. I think utility companies are overvalued at this point in time, and I think a rising interest rate environment is going to come under pressure. We're still not in the ninth inning of this movement towards uh, dividend yield and this movement uh, towards owning companies uh, that are paying dividends. And as a result, uh, these these sectors like the utility sector may, in fact, appreciate, but I, I would not be looking to overweight that sector at this point in time.
1: Okay, uh, well, it's. I think it's all very interesting. Uh, we know, though, based on the Fed minutes that we saw yesterday, that the officials uh, in the FOMC agreed on uh, disagreed. I'm sorry, on several issues uh, d- that delaying another uh, interest rate uh, shouldn't be wa- shouldn't be delayed that much um, uh, because it could increase the risks to financial stability. And then there's the other side that said they wanted to see um, sufficient e-
2: evidence accumulated. Uh, that would uh, sustain a pickup. I think those FOMC meetings, uh, meeting notes were before the Brexit vote. That's true. That right. Works. So the, the, they're occurring before the Brexit vote. There was a majority saying, listen, we have to be careful about uh, raising uh, interest rates. They said, let's wait and see what happens with Britain's vote. Uh, this vote in Britain, it's really pushing, uh, what it's really showing us is that you really have to, the old tried and true method of investing which is owning equities and owning fixed income securities in the U.S., is going to prosper over the next uh, five to seven years. That all these, uh, if you look at what's been happening, uh, you know, there's been a movement away from the U.S., there's been a movement towards international equities, uh, towards owning international bonds. And what's happening, what, what's playing out is the U.S. is continuing to grow, and what's happening is Europe is, is coming under pressure, mm-hmm. and Asia is coming under pressure. And in a low-growth environment, you're going to see capital flows continue to move uh, towards the U.S., continue to move towards uh, things that have lower degrees of leverage. Uh, so I see it as a, uh, as a central endorsement of the firm's philosophy, which is to keep it uh, very, very straightforward in terms of the instruments that you want to be investing in. You don't want to be going out and trying to buy uh, international REITs. You want to be focused on U.S. reits if you want to be owning reits at all in the portfolio. Because we've got the
1: stronger. Economy. Because
2: we've you, got the stronger economy and it's just more stable over long periods of time. When I when I talked about the steady investor and the six percent annualized rate of return of the equity markets, uh, that was effectively for the U.S. equity markets. If you look at other equity markets. Because they engage in wars, the countries and things of that sort, you don't see this upward trend uh, as stable over time. And we have negative rates, <laughs>
1: plenty
0: of right, race. Right,
2: we have negative rates, which I, I don't think is sustainable, and I would expect the rates to rise. So I would generally expect that if you look at the earnings yield of the S&P 500 and you compare it to the Treasury yield. So when I say the earnings yield of the S&P 500, if you purchase all the companies that are in the S&P 500 and you privatize them, and you took all the earnings they're generating and you uh, essentially took it as a dividend uh, without the tax effect, mm-hmm. you would get an earnings yield that's substantially higher uh, than the 10-year Treasury yield. And that is not that sustainable over long periods of time. So what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to see the earnings yield of the stocks of the equity market fall, which is going to happen from having prices rise, and you're going to have to see the Treasury yield essentially rise as well. I mean, if you look at it this way, if you took... If you took money and you gave it to the, uh, the Treasury at the at 10-year yield, you're, you're below 2%. You're at like one5 1.6% annualized yield. If you took that same money and you bought a portfolio of high-yielding dividend stocks and you held that portfolio for a 10-year period, you're going to get a higher dividend yield on that portfolio, and you're also going to get capital appreciation. Now, during that time period, you're going to see uh, tremendous fluctuations in the value of those companies, but over a 10-year period... Uh, equities are very, very likely, almost guaranteed, I I shouldn't say guaranteed, but they're very, very likely to outperform fixed income. Because in this one box, listen, you're going to get 10-year Treasury yield at 1.5%, and during that period of time, you're going to probably see interest rates rise. Mm -hmm. On the equity side, you're going to get a dividend yield of 26 2.7% for a large-cap value portfolio, and you're going to see price appreciation occur with the underlying component stocks. So it's like, if you look at AT AT&T's debt, versus AT&T's equity, it's very, very clear that AT&T's equity is a more attractive investment right now than AT&T's debt. In both instances, you're you're exposed to the credit risk of AT&T, but with its equity, you can profit over time uh, because of the price appreciation. That's great. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back to
1: talk about the most pessimistic bull, pessimistic bull market in history. We're with Mitch, Mitch Sachs. You'll find the experts here.
0: Voice America Business Network. Zacks Investment Management is a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zacks, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zacks focuses on providing solutions rather than selling our clients' product. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of experts located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to zimwealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZIMWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. Today's dramatic business and workforce changes make it urgent to think differently about HR. Instead of being just the system of record or engagement, HR needs to become an agile platform for everything in your organization to come together to transform the work experience. How can you develop your key relationships across the business as you transform HR into a powerful force for business breakthroughs? Tune in Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Changing the Game with HR, presented by SAP.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show.
1: From beautiful Chicago, Illinois, this is The Steady Investor Show with Mark Vickery. That's me. And Mitch Zacks, who is the managing director and portfolio manager at Zacks Investment Manager. I'm sorry, Zachs Investment Management. I'll get it right one of these days, Mitch. Um, we've been doing this for you. Uh, Zachs Investment Management is a wealth management boutique that was formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars
2: uh, for thousands of customers. You discussed this a little bit before, but yeah. that's pretty much the gist of it. Is that correct? Yeah, what we what we try and do is we run proprietary investment strategies. Uh, using uh, investment anomalies, so we try and identify uh, groups of stocks that share similar characteristics that will outperform over long periods of time. We try and create portfolios using those anomalies to outperform s- uh, specific benchmarks. Right. Then what we uh, do on the uh, private client level is an individual client uh, come in and talk to us about. What their goals are in terms of their assets. What are they trying to accomplish? Uh, what are they? Where are they trying to generate wealth? Uh, what rate of return are they trying to generate? And then we will customize an allocation for them across our proprietary strategies. And uh, what I was talking about before is the importance of being able to stay uh, invested in those strategies over long periods of time. Right. Our goal, for instance, in our small cap. Four strategies out to perform out to to outperform the Russell uh, 2000 benchmark index. Okay. Now, uh, if we accomplish our goal and we we outperform by let's say three or four or two percent uh, after fees uh, for the year, we're very excited. But then you have the Russell 2000 could go up or down. And what is very important to people to realize is that the important thing is to stay invested in the Russell over long periods of time. That there'll come periods of time. Uh, when the Russell seems like it's going to go to the moon, it's going to continue to go up, and there will come periods of time when the Russell 2000 comes under tremendous amounts of pressure. You have to ignore your emotions in both uh, cases and just continue to hold that equity exposure over long periods of time. Now, if you can do that, you should be able to generate an annualized return of around 6% above the risk-free rate over an extended period of time. So let's say we can generate, let's say the risk-free rate increases, it gets to about 2%, and uh, you know, we can generate 6% above the 2%, so we can generate an 8% annualized rate of return. Well, after nine years, because of compounding, if we can generate an 8% uh, net of fee uh, for the client after nine years, the assets uh, will double. And so that's how people generate wealth. It is not a process where it is, well, can I uh, outperform the market in the next month? Can I generate the market and go, go up in the next three months? It really is trying to get a 6 to 9% annualized rate of return and staying invested for an 8 to 10-year period. And if you can do that, the assets you have invested will double. And if you can do that for another 10 years, they double again. And if you talk to people who have tremendous, you have generated wealth in the equity markets, the story is almost always the same, which is that they invested in an equity, they held the equity for an extended period of time, and they didn't get shaken out. And over long periods of time, what the turmoil in the market does is it transfers the wealth uh, from those who panic uh, to those who remain steady in the market. It sounds like a good deal because the Russell 2000 is a small cap-based
1: uh, more volatile uh, index anyway than say yeah. the s and 500. I mean,
2: I mean, there's evidence that over long periods of time the Russell 2000, because you are bearing more risk, should outperform the S&P 500, but like you said, if the market goes down uh, because of a, a calamity, the Russell 2000 is going to go down more than the market. It's a higher, slightly higher beta uh, index uh, than the S&P 500. We also have strategies that try and outperform the Ross 1000 value, which is a large cap value index. Okay, And uh, those strategies are very much in favor right now uh, because the low interest rate environment is causing the search for yield across the U.S. equity spectrum. And so what, what investors are looking for are companies with very, very stable earning streams that can pay a consistent dividend. Now when interest rates were 6%, that wasn't that interesting. But with interest rates at 1.5%, 1.4% uh, for the 10-year treasury, uh, if you can find an equity that's a stable company uh, like AT&T that's paying a substantially higher dividend yield right. uh, and hold that for a long period of time, if interest rates remain low, you're going to generate excess returns over those stocks that don't pay dividends and over the S&P 500 in, in Very good. Now, before we go on to an article that you wrote recently, I wanted to give a quick
1: uh, plug here. Can I do that? Um, For uh, for Zach's Investment Management, Um, if you're interested in talking to uh, Mitch or one of the people in Mitch's office, you can call us at 1-800-245-2934. Excuse me. Say that again. 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZIMWealth.com. That's for Zach's Investment Management, ZIMWealth.com. Okay, let's talk about the most pessimistic bull market in history. This is an article you wrote. Uh, looks like the production
2: date on that was, or the publishing date was June 27th. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's it, an old adage that uh, bull markets climb walls of worry, right. which is that uh, you know when, when uh, Ben and I founded this firm years ago, and we used to have fewer employees, we used to sit around for the uh, holiday parties. And uh, one thing Ben used to do is go around and ask everyone which way they thought the market was going. And if everyone thought the market was going up, that would be a negative sign. And, and the, the reason is you, you need to have pessimism in the market that is overcome for a bull market to continue to run. When everyone buys into the bull market and there's tremendous optimism, you have this exuberance that occurs and you'll have a couple, maybe half a year or another year, a year or two of you know, just inflated asset prices. Uh, before the correction occurs. So it's very, very encouraging that measures of investor sentiment are extremely negative. That if you go to the average person on the street, they're not very excited about investing in the equity market. If you look at the headlines and you do word analysis of blog postings and you look at the negative words that are listed in the blog postings, you see it higher than what it has been historically. All of this is very, very positive for the market. Uh, because markets tend to climb a wall of worry. When there's, uh, when there's a disbelief or there's a not, when everyone's not buying into the market and getting excited about it, it means the market can continue to go higher. There's an old adage, which is to try and be fearful uh, when, uh, when others are greedy and somewhat greedy when others are fearful. Right. <laughs> and the uh, trend to see a sort of pessimism is telling you that people are fearful. And uh, that across the board is letting us know that the market probably has farther to run. If you look at cash levels of many professional investors, they're at all-time highs. If you look at hedge funds in terms of their net equity exposures, they're they're not particularly high at all. So you're seeing cash levels build up, you're seeing hedge funds not take very much a long position, and you're seeing a general uh, malaise about the potential U.S. economy and uh, about the market. All this is extremely positive. It's when there's a exuberance about the market, all the good news gets baked into the prices, and the new news that comes in is likely to surprise to the downside. When there's malaise, when there's a level of pessimism about the market, uh, the market is easier to surprise to the upside with general news that occurs. And that's interesting, because when you say
1: when there's a, a real... Uh, a uh, glut of, or at least really real uh, people start buying up stocks. That's the time to be more fearful. Right. When when things kind of get overvalued at that point, is that
2: correct? When when you start seeing the mood in the in the investment community become euphoric, and you start seeing extensive risk taking starting to occur, uh, we saw that prior to two thousand and seven, uh, you know two thousand and eight. You start to see uh, instruments being created that were never created before. You started to see this belief uh, that no debt instrument could do wrong. You start to see credit uh, CDOs essentially uh, being bought up regardless of the tranche. You're not seeing that in the equity markets at this point in time. It's the opposite. You're seeing people, uh, well, that's interesting. Maybe the markets will go up, maybe they won't. I need to find something else to generate some returns. And that's exactly the environment you want for the market uh, to appreciate. So I'm very, very enthused by the fact uh, that there's uh, there's not a tremendous amount of optimism about stocks right now. And there tends to be a lot of uh, pessimism about stocks. And the the pessimism is driven by, uh, well, the the, the lack of, uh, you know, robust growth in the U.S., the low interest rate environment, the lack of technological change, the lack of earnings growth, the lack of job growth. All these things are very, very positive for the potential uh, future of the market. The other thing that's very, very positive is there's limited to no IPO activity. And that's very, very, very positive. Generally, when the market is hitting its highs you start to see enhanced amounts of uh, IPO activity. You start to see companies going public at a rapid pace. You start to see uh, corporate managers issuing stock to raise capital. And that's not what we're seeing at all. Corporate managers are still issuing primarily debt, which is telling us that debt is overvalued relative to equities. And we're not seeing a, uh, we're not seeing IPOs uh, lining up across the block uh, to, to go public. And that tells you that you're in a situation where public market valuations are actually lower than private market valuations, which means that public market valuations uh, you know, have room to run.
1: And then you'd only really start feeling a little concern about uh, the investment strategy that you're just describing once you see that uh, exuberance coming back into the market, once things really do start taking off.
2: You, you do start to see it, but the, the key issue is that you, do, you want to ignore it. You, you do, you, there's no way to determine when that bull market starts to become a bear market you can't time that right so the correct course of action is you have to hold equities through the bear the bull market run-up to the bear market pullback and the bull market recovery and that will happen over a 10-year period and the key is because you can't time when these events are going to occur you can't predict what's going to happen necessarily with the market I believe it's going to go up the indication is from the low IPO activity uh, the negative sentiment the relatively low interest rates the attractive valuations of equities relative to bonds, the market should be heading higher. Uh, but you, you can't invest on that idea. The investment is that you know that whatever's happened before, the market's been able to assimilate it and generate this annualized rate of return of 6 to 9%, uh, 6% above the risk-free rate. That you can take to the bank. That is likely going to materialize, very, very likely, to materialize over the next 10 to 15 years. So it's like you don't know how... The next inning of the game is going to come out, but you know how the game ends. The game ends with the equity market heading higher because that's what's happened historically. And if you look at the problems facing the market, and you think about the problems that faced the economy in the 1970s, in 2000, in 2008, in the 1950s, in the 1940s, during the Cold War, uh, during all sorts of turmoil in Indochina, during all sorts of uh, massive geopolitical upheaval... What the market's been able to do is continue to uh, advance at a 6% annualized rate of return above the risk rate. That's historically happened. It is extremely likely that's going to happen in the future. Now, that's not going to mean the market's going to go up at that rate every year. Some years it's going to be double that. Some years it's going to go down uh, very dramatically. In aggregate. But in aggregate, in average, it continues to march on and on at this annualized rate of return. And and that's the key issue. So yes, it, 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 generally speaking, you can run studies, and they're very uh, the very weak ability to determine which way the market is going. But those studies do seem to indicate the market should more likely be headed up than down at this point in
1: time. Very good. Now back to your article. There are really three key. You broke this down nicely uh, with three key types of influence on market trends. Influences on market trends. Uh,
2: economic policy and sentiment. Can you talk a little bit about each one of those? Sure. In terms of corporate earnings, as the economy strengthens, uh, corporate earnings uh, tend to increase. So you want a growing economy, but you want an economy uh, that's more importantly growing faster than expectations. So you have to understand that everyone buying stocks is are buying them based on an expectation of earnings growth, and if that earnings growth is surpassed to the upside, uh, the market tends to appreciate. So generally speaking. The uh, economic expectations are pretty muted right now. People are not expecting the economy to really grow at a uh, uh, rate comparable to where it has historically. And as a result, you're, you're, there's a chance of surprise to the upside. Okay. How about policy? Policies is, 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 are the changes that are occurring in the marketplace due to regulation. And there are some issues on the policy side that are very concerning. In
1: election you, year, you have, you have
2: some You have some political issues that are... Uh, uh... coming up and if you if you do see some changes politically uh... they could have some negative impact in in the market uh... but generally speaking there's this tidal wave of uh... upsetness across most developed countries that is occurring because the lack of uh, wage growth it's not materializing mm-hmm. so this is being expressed in changes in policy changes in the regulatory environment And if that wave can be beaten back, I think it's positive for that market. But as you saw with Brexit, it was a very negative event for the the British economy. It's not a rational choice to occur, but it occurred because of political upheaval and political uh, upsetness and resentment over the lack of wage growth. So there is, uh, on the policy side, the economic side, the market's looking very strong. The policy side, there are some warning signs in the future in in terms of if there is not, uh, if this tidal wave of populism across the world is not put down, you're you're going to see some negative effects. And then sentiment Mm -hmm. really is saying that you know, bull markets, as John Templeton said, are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. And uh, we're, in a, we're in the period of pessimism right now because of the political environment, because of the slow growth in the economy, uh, and that's very, very positive for the market.
1: And this is pretty much what you touched on before when yes, you
2: were discussing you, you it. Yes. You don't have... If I think back to 2000 uh, riding in cabs and having cab drivers, you know, I explain what I did. It was a smaller firm at that point in time, but it, you know people would be saying, "Oh, I'm buying JDSU. I'm buying this. It goes up 10% each day. I've sold my taxi medallion, and I'm going to just be a, a day trader." And hmm. you're seeing the opposite of that occurring, right? right? Is, no one. So, so that is very, very positive uh, for that market, and that is very much tied to the level of IPO activity, which is a little bit more measurable. And so the fact that we're seeing very, very low IPO activity uh, coincides with the fact that sentiment is is very, very muted. You have companies that are very, very large cap growth companies growing at extraordinarily fast rates, uh, trading at P multiples that years ago would be uh, levels above. The issue right now with the market is really this question of whether the earnings growth is going to materialize uh, sufficiently to propel the market higher okay and you have a bottom line for investors you do think there is one thing that could kill this bull market yeah I think if, if, if essentially it's complacency if corporate earnings recover and then China and Europe uh, post better than expected returns uh, you 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 might see them pour into equities because they don't want to miss you know to the upside uh, but that would be like effectively euphoric behavior so it's it's kind of the the, the Danger to the market right now, in my mind, is this concept of complacency that people start to see well, Brexit happened and nothing really bad happened. The market fell five, six percent, and then it came back five, six percent over the next week. Um, So, whatever happens to the market, the Federal Reserve is going to bail the market out. Let's just leverage and put all our money, uh, you know, two to one, into the US equity markets. Okay. You're not seeing that type of behavior materialize. Let's hold that for a okay, but next if you timeline. do that would be a negative for the board. Very
1: good. Thank you, Mitch. We'll be right back.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Zax Investment Management is a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zacks, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zax focuses on providing solutions rather than selling our clients' product. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of experts located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to zimwealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZIMWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor.
1: That when you work with marketing or PR firms, they're
0: moving in slow motion.
1: Or they just don't know what they're talking about. You won't get that on Marketing at Lightspeed. Host Ethan Raziel and his guest experts will deliver tips and tricks that work at Lightspeed. If you want to accelerate your company's marketing, listen every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Hi
1: again, Voice America Business Channel listeners. This is Mark Vickery with The Steady Investor. I'm joined by Mitch Zax for this entire segment. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you so far. We do have one more segment we'd like to get to uh, some things. Uh, Mitch, because you are the uh, the managing director of uh, Zaxx Investment, uh, management, uh, we wanted to ask you some questions about what investors should look for in a money manager. What, what t- sorts of qualities? What sorts of questions investors can ask uh, to to uh,
2: find themselves the right person? I, I think the, the, I'm looking through the the piece we have here. One of the things that jumps to my mind is that with a registered investment advisor, you're dealing with someone who's a fiduciary, so they're always trying to act. They're required to uh, act in your best interest at all periods of time. When you're dealing with a broker, they're selling products and they're earning commissions. So they don't always have to act in your best interest at all time. Uh, but what they're trying to do effectively is uh, try and get something that's, quote, suitable for an investor. And uh, generally speaking, I think you're better off uh, with a uh, registered investment advisor because of the fiduciary uh constraint or the fiduciary duty that the investment advisor has. They're beholden to your they, interest. They, they, or... We have to work in the client's best interest at all periods of time from a legal perspective. And that is a stronger uh, philosophy. It's a, it's a better philosophy for a client to be operating under than with a broker where they're trying to sell a product and potentially get commissions. Right. That's not to say brokers are bad. They're very, very good brokers, but you don't have this added uh, per, uh, this value enhancement of being a fiduciary at points in time. Right, what they call the fiduciary standard. Right, standards. so it's a fiduciary standard. So it's uh, you essentially, you, you don't have the suitability standard. I think that's very important. The other issue is what, what custodians do you use? With an investment advisor, uh, unlike with a brokerage firm, the assets stay at a custodian. So what I'm saying is, uh, if you have an account at Schwab or Fidelity, the assets stay at Schwab and Fidelity and you give the investment advisor the ability to trade those assets at Schwab and Fidelity for fees. So they're looking uh, through that portfolio and they're trying to determine in that portfolio what are the best stocks and bonds to be purchasing for you in your circumstance. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, You want to be working with a custodian that you feel comfortable with uh, so that the money is safe at all periods of time. You don't want to be in a situation where the you know the custodian is someone you've never heard of, uh, or it, it is a very very small operation. So we tend to work with uh, three custodians: Schwab, uh, Fidelity, and Folio FN. All uh, three very very stable, large, uh, relatively large organizations. Uh, that that uh, over time uh, helps an uh, investor make sure that the money is safe.
1: Yeah, household names, all three too. Uh,
2: how are now how are advisors compensated in general? Generally speaking, as a registered investment advisor, it's a fee-based arrangement, and that's usually the best arrangement, so that we are paid a percentage of the assets under management. So we have a huge incentive, uh, not just us, other registered investment advisors as well, uh, to try and grow the assets as much as possible. So if we grow the assets, our fees go up. If the assets go down in value, our fees go down. So over long periods of time, what we want to do is make sure we have strategies that are causing the firm to grow, and those strategies that cause the firm to grow are also the same strategy that causes an individual client's account to effectively grow over time. Okay. So a, 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 in a commission-based world, the uh, broker might sell something like a private equity deal, a non-traded REIT, uh, something that has a relatively higher fee. And uh, these fees, uh, annuities are a perfect example. They can run to 5 to 7% of the investment. There's no liquidity. Uh, there's lockups involved. Once you invest in these things, you can't get out of them, uh, and it's highly lucrative for the broker selling them. In our instance, as a registered investment advisor, we're not investing in these strategies because they're not in the best interest of the client. And and These strategies also, over time, are likely not to grow the client's assets. Generally speaking, you can do much better by just owning a basket of of high-quality U.S. equities than you can by doing an annuity the annuity gives this false sense of security because they they keep giving you a statement that doesn't change in value but in reality it's changing in value dramatically and the rate of return you're going to get over a ten year period is much much lower than owning U.S. equities you're also exposed that if the world really does come under massive pressure uh, you're exposed to the credit risk of the entity that offered you the annuity so it's like you lose to the downside and you lose to the upside but it's disguised in a marketing package So that the client does not see fluctuation in the account, they say, "Well, the market fell twenty percent. All my account hasn't fallen. The market falls another twenty percent. What happens is there's no money in the account because the person who's issuing the annuity has gone bankrupt. Uh And so we saw that in 2008, where the annuities did not protect the downside. So it's very important, I think, uh, that you're paid on a invest an AUM basis, where it's a fee based on the amount of assets under management. You're working in the client's best interest. You're working as a fiduciary where you have to provide the client with the best advice. You always have to act in their best interest. You're trying to grow the client's money over time.
1: That's a very, very good point. Now, not to put you on the spot, but let's talk about Zacks Investment Management for a second. How have your investment strategies performed versus their benchmarks? Well,
2: the reason we've been able to grow the firm from $50 million to $4.5 billion is because over long periods of time, we are able to generate excess returns and that is because the strategies are based on anomalies uh, that will work over long periods of time. So for instance, if you're looking at all the companies in the small cap universe, in the Russell 2000, and you're trying to figure out which companies to buy, if you give a bias towards those companies that have received upward earnings estimate revisions, they're likely to receive upward earnings estimate revisions in the future. Now this won't happen over every quarter, over every half year, or even every one or two or three year period, but over long periods of time, a portfolio of companies, of stocks that are, have received upward earnings estimate revisions, are likely to receive upward earnings estimate revisions in the future. And when those estimate revisions uh, materialize, uh, you tend to see if P multiples uh, stay relatively constant, you tend to see the price of that uh, company or that stock uh, increase. So what we've been able to do at Zacks is take these anomalies and implement them in client accounts. One of them is the earnings estimate revision anomaly, which is an anomaly that we actually invented uh, by looking and creating the concept of the quarterly consensus earnings estimate. Other anomalies are anomalies that are you know well known in the academic literature, uh, such as evaluation anomaly. In our dividend strategy, what we're doing is we really are looking for stocks that have dividend yields above their average. Have cash flow yields above their average, and have short interest relative to shares outstanding uh, below average. So again, we're looking for companies that have a higher than average dividend yield, lower than average short interest. So hedge funds are not shorting these companies, and as a result, the uh, dividend yield is going to likely be more sustainable over long periods of time. And when we implement that in our dividend strategy over you know a uh, ten-year ten-year period we've been able to uh, outperform uh, the benchmark Russell 1000 value. And that's
1: how advisors are able to manage yes. the risk.
2: You're talking about, you know, if your expectation is for the market to appreciate at 6% above the risk-free rate of return, and the risk-free rate is zero, so your expectations were for a 6 to 7% rate of return, if you can just get 1% or 2% above that net of fees through active management, you can dramatically cut down on the amount of time it takes uh, to double the money, so if you're at a seven percent rate of return, it's going to take you uh, essentially ten years uh, for you to double the money. If you're at an eight, if you're at a nine percent rate of return, it takes you eight years, mm-hmm. and that doesn't seem like a lot. But over if, if a twenty-year period, uh, you've doubled now in eight years. You've doubled now in eight years, and now you've gone halfway through another doubling period. So it compounds itself over time. Right. So the ability to generate excess returns through ath- through active management substantially helps generate overall wealth over long periods of time if a client can stay invested in the strategy and deal with the fact that some periods of time it outperforms and some periods of time it underperforms.
1: Okay, can I ask you a question about the background of the portfolio
2: managers? Of sure. Investment management? I've been doing this, I mean there's a, there's a team of portfolio managers, I head up the team, there are two primary portfolio managers, myself and Ben Zacks, and uh, we've been doing this for all our adult lives and then we work with a team of PhDs and uh... in terms of developing the anomalies that we implement in the strategy in terms okay. of my background I uh, graduated from Yale I uh, worked as an investment banker for a while on Wall Street I then got an MBA in uh, analytic finance and statistics from the University of Chicago and uh... you know effectively started the firm with Ben uh... and we've been doing it for effectively about uh, since since the mid-90s almost uh, 20 years Two decades, uh, my entire adult life yeah, you've has, been spent, your focus, yeah. has been spent trying to develop anomalies that will outperform the market. Okay, that's terrific.
1: Um, let me ask you uh, one more. Qu- uh, let's. Do I have any more questions about money managers? Is there anything, anything you can wrap up on? So Zach's investment management, it's a, It's obviously... Uh,
2: you you want to find a firm that has been doing it for a long period of time. Right. We've been doing this uh, you know, for over two decades, uh, managing money. You definitely need a, a tenure or over 10 years. It's a very strange field. I mean, you, you're able... That's to gener- show
1: uh, results. Over to that.
2: show results. But the results are only... It, it, it's only driven through trial and error over long periods of time. If I start at uh, today and I say, let me look historically and find strategies that outperform the market, a, a doctoral student in finance can come back and show me 30 strategies that seem to have outperformed the market. But then, if I look at those thirty strategies and I, I look forward another ten years, there might be only three or four of them that outperform the market. Okay. And so the question is, was that data mining? Did we go back and find historical relationships that don't persist over time because we're sifting through so much data, or is there something? Is there a real relationship underlying uh, that anomaly? You only determine this through trial and error over long periods of time, and that's why being a family-run firm not being uh, forced to generate returns every single uh, quarter where we're trying to generate long-term excess returns allows us better to approach uh, implementing these anomalies over long periods of
1: time. Very, very good. I want to also give that plug again, uh, if you'd like to talk to Mitch or you'd like to talk to someone else at Zach's Investment Management, uh, give us a call at 800-245-2934 or to lo- learn more about Zach's Investment Management, go to ZimWealth.com.
2: It- Yes, and we right. should just let people know that the firm has grown to uh, such a size that I likely will not be answering the phone when oh, they call that's, in. that's true. I don't mean but, to so, <laughs> Someone will, will talk with them, and uh, what we do is we have an investment committee at SACS that does oversee every client's asset allocation across our strategies. Uh, the investment committee consists of myself, Manish Jane, uh, Ben. Uh, Manish really spearheads the allocation decisions, uh, but if there are issues, they will come to me and uh, I will be involved in the customization, but I spend most of my time on the underlying strategies uh, trying to outperform uh, the benchmarks uh, by implementing these anomalies that we've either invented or that we've popularized or that we believe will persist over long periods of time. As a matter of fact, on future episodes
1: of The Study Investor, we may actually hear from some of these individuals. Is that yeah, I,
2: I would hope so, yes. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes <laughs> we've them over lot, long so. <laughs> periods of time. Uh, but what we're very willing to do is sit down and explain how are we beating the market in these different strategies. So, what specifically are we doing in our small cap core strategy that's enabling us to outperform the Russell Two Thousand? What are we doing in our large cap value strategy that's enabling us uh, to beat uh, large cap value indices? What, are, what is Ben doing in his all cap core strategy uh, that, over a, a very long period, has enabled him to generate an excess return uh, several percentage points above the market while bearing less risk? And a lot of it has to do with just being consistent over time in the implementation of the anomaly, and not adjusting what you're doing when it is not working. Now, that sounds very counterintuitive, but if you go through a period and you say, well, we believe low price-to-book stocks outperform high price-to-book stocks, what we're going to do is uh, determine a value metric, uh, perform uh, perform an optimization, and create a portfolio with uh, risk characteristics very similar to the benchmark, uh, there'll be periods of time that works, and there'll be periods of time it doesn't work. And when it does work, it might work very well. And when it doesn't work, it might not work very well. The key is you cannot determine what periods of time a valuation strategy will tend to do better. So if you just stay committed to the strategy over long periods of time, you're able to generate the excess returns.
1: As you have at Zacks Investment Management. That will about do it for our debut episode. What do you call this on a podcast? Um, Anyway, this is uh, for 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Oh, I'm Mark Vickery. Been with Mitch Zacks from Zacks Investment Management. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of the Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for?